Hello listeners and welcome to today's podcast recorded here in Seoul on the morning of Monday, May 27th, 2019. And I'm joined via Skype by Joshua Stanton in Washington, D.C., where it's still Sunday evening. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Joshua Stanton runs a blog called One Free Career that can be found at freecareer.us. In the blog's About page, he describes himself as South Dakota's foremost authority on North Korea. He, quote, went to law school, joined the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps, served in South Korea from 1998 to 2002, went native, came back to America, lawyer in Washington, D.C. by day, gadfly and contrarian by night. He helped the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs draft the bills that became law as the North Korean Sanctions and Foreign Policy Enhancement Act, Public Law Number 114-122, the Korean Interdiction and Modernization of Sanctions Act, Title III of Public Law Number 115-44, and various bills for various members of uh, Congress since then. He also testified to the U.S. House International Relations Committee in September 2006 in a hearing called United States Republic of Korea Alliance, an alliance at risk. Thank you for coming on the show today, Joshua. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with uh, how and when did you get interested in uh, North Korea-related issues? I served in Korea, in South Korea, as a soldier between 1998 and 2002. I stayed interested in it in part because my wife is Korean, from Korea now, the, the culture, the language, many aspects of the, the history continue to hold my interest to this day. And uh, I have just stayed engaged in the issues there. Okay. And uh, what, so you, you mentioned that, yeah, you've got, uh, you've been back in the States since 2002, but you still have a connection. You mentioned your wife is from there. Is that what drives you to keep going, uh, even while there are so many issues in the world clamoring for attention? Well, this is the one that, again, captured my attention and continues to hold my interest. And I think that being someone who does this, uh, as a hobby and not for a living has been an interesting and a very different perspective than the one that you will typically see from professional scholars or government officials. And the topic that we're going to be talking about today may be one where that perspective may be somewhat more independent uh, than others. Uh, so tell us about your blog. How, did, how long have you run that and how did that project begin? I first started it in 2003, shortly uh, after I returned from Korea and uh, shortly after I left the Army. And when I was in Washington, D.C., I was almost immediately struck by the disconnect between the almost unanimous views of the experts here in Washington, congressional staffers, uh, members of Congress, those who were really informing the public about Korea versus the perspective, I think that one would acquire just as an ordinary soldier serving in Korea. Mm. One of the things I wanted to do was to perhaps to be a corrective, perhaps to bridge that difference. How has your blog changed over the years? It's been 16 years now. Is it still uh, more or less along the same lines? Oh, I think it's changed a fair amount. For one thing, I go back and I read some of my old posts, and I think they're almost completely unreadable because I, I have been posting less frequently and maybe somewhat more carefully in recent years now that people in government and journalists do read it. Mm. You know, when a person is in a position to influence the direction of policy and legislation, 
then uh, I think one acquires a greater sense of responsibility, but also maybe a, a lessened sense of futility about things. Futility sometimes leads one to write in an angrier tone than if one thinks that, well, maybe this post will actually influence people to change the way they execute policy. And there are times when I think now that it does. Just generally uh, about the North Korean regime, is it your wish that the uh, regime collapses or is somehow overthrown in a sudden event? Oh, I think we would all prefer that it is changed in some form or another. Anyone who wants a regime responsible for crimes against humanity and threats to peace and to its neighbors to persist in its present form must have some terrible moral shortcoming. I want to see a regime in North Korea that lives at peace with its neighbors and with its own people. I think that it is exceedingly unlikely that the engagement theory advocated by so many think tank experts is the solution to that problem. I think the most likely solution to the problem is probably a coup d'etat that leads to some other milder, more malleable form of dictatorship that we can then influence in the direction of maybe becoming a more humane, peaceful place. But somehow this state must change. And I can see any number of ways in which we can, in solidarity with its people, put political pressure on the state, both from within the elites and from below, uh, until Kim Jong-un concludes that change is the only way to survive. Do you have in your mind a best-case scenario, how such a process would, would look? Well, it's the one that I outlined to you that maybe Huang Pyeongso or Che Yong-hye concludes that the financial condition of the regime has become unsustainable and desperate. And so they push Kim Jong-un aside and they seek some form of accommodation with the United States and South Korea in exchange for a financial bailout. They agree to a steady and verifiable timetable of reform, disarmament, and opening. But another alternative is that the security forces are so bankrupted by well-targeted sanctions that what then begins to happen is the system, the, the, the regime's immune system, as it were, breaks down. Events such as market protests and tax revolts become more frequent, and in order to appease the population, the regime becomes less oppressive to the point where it is at something of a stalemate with its own population. That also is a way that the the system unwittingly and unwillingly reforms. So, look, I'm willing to see any number of different ways to pressure this state to change because I don't believe that it can be cajoled or induced to change. Is there a timeline in which you you anticipate this could all happen? I mean, could it uh, go on as it has for the la- for the next 10 years? It, it is entirely possible, and that's why I think it's important that we you know not continue to practice the diplomacy of instant gratification as if one signature will solve this problem, but it is also possible that things will change very suddenly. 
the situation that occurred in Libya is obviously something that is not ideal on a lot of different levels. North Korea is a much more complex and dangerous place than Libya ever was. But nonetheless, events in states that survive on the fear of the people have a tendency to move very rapidly, much faster than we might predict. Events in Albania and Romania and East Germany and any other extreme totalitarian and uh, you know seemingly stable regimes change much faster than we thought. What we can control and what we can predict is obviously much more limited than what actual history shows us. So what we have to do is to convince the regime in Pyongyang that we're exerting forms of pressure on it that are going to continue to build until the odds of a sudden change become so great and time is so much against it that it has to seek an accommodation. I see that as being achieved through a combination of, again, sanctions that target the security forces and the immune system combined with political subversion of the state, information operations, broadcasting, means to mobilize the discontent of the population in the direction of seeing that the government is the problem. Are there any arguments against sanctions that you find are good ones, and how do you counter them? It depends on how the sanctions are implemented. So to the extent that sanctions were targeted broadly against the entire economy and not targeted with any precision, then they would have a lot of unwanted consequences against the population as a whole. And and that would not only be undesirable, but amoral. What I see evidence of is sanctions are causing some human suffering in South Pyongyang province. And that is the coal mining region. And it is also the fact that the coal exports are financing North Korea's proliferation and military and things that are in fact legitimate targets for sanctions. So how do you ameliorate that? I would support well-monitored food aid that ensures that food gets to the hungry because even if a North Korean coal miner has an important role to play in financing the nuclear program, we don't have any quarrel with coal miners or their children. So that's an argument that I'm particularly sensitive to. The other concern that I have is that if the pressure from sanctions becomes so great that Kim Jong-un feels cornered and has no other alternative, would he do something suicidal and desperate? Well, I don't think he's particularly suicidal. Uh, He might be desperate. But I do think that the effect, and it perhaps is an unintentional effect, of Donald Trump making these fairly um, obsequious tweets to Kim Jong-un will will be to at least say that the door is open. Now, I think that we can find ways to tell Kim Jong-un that the door to talks is open without comparing him favorably to Joe Biden. But nonetheless, uh, it is important that as sanctions begin to take effect, and I'm convinced that they are, that we also maintain uh, a diplomatic off-ramp for the North Koreans.
In the uh, the intro that I quoted at the beginning, uh, I, I said that you were involved in the drafting of two important sanctions acts in the USA, and you also mentioned earlier that uh, uh, people are now listening to you, so you feel less of a sense of futility. Are you currently uh, engaged with the White House or Capitol Hill? Uh, the White House only passively. Uh, I get feedback occasionally that people in various parts of the administration read the site. I will say that I'm doing less of that because I have less time to do blogging because of other projects I'm involved in. Um, I'm actually writing a couple of papers for think tanks right now. Uh, and full disclosure, I'm getting honoraria for those. There are no foreign sources. Uh, they are, in fact, funded by the U.S. State Department. So there's my disclosure. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about the importance of disclosure later in this podcast, so I think it's it's fair that I that I go first. Um, I, you know, have been engaged in drafting uh, potential sanctions legislation for uh, congressional committees as recently as last week. So yes, there continues to be interest, and I tend to get more emails from the Hill when North Korea launches more missiles. And what my advice to them is, is take your time, uh, go through the Legislative Council and through the other committee staff carefully, run all the traps that you have to run, and then when the window of opportunity arises, then Congress will be ready to act. Is your engagement uh, with the Hill uh, bipartisan? Oh, yes. Uh, I recently wrote a fairly extensive piece of legislation for a Democratic member, uh, but I'm not going to get into the names of really anyone but Ed Royce's committee uh, before he retired. I just would like to let the members take credit for their own work. Mm -hmm. uh, overall, how do you feel about uh, President Trump's administration's policy on uh, North Korea and the negotiations uh, for denu denuclearization? It's an improvement over the Obama, Bush, and Clinton administration policies, but that's a comparison to a very low baseline. The Trump administration policy is incoherent. I don't know exactly what Trump hopes to accomplish or how he hopes to accomplish it, but it seems the best I can interpret it is it's a variation on the old pressure and engagement strategies, or if, to use the Washington cliche, carrot and stick strategies, we've seen for the last 20 or 30 years now that is all premised on this idea that for the right combination of pressure and inducements, North Korea wants to open up and become a wealthy nation. I think the last thing that Kim Jong-un wants is to open up and uh, let his subjects see how people in other parts of the world live and how much better, in fact, they live. Uh, I think he needs to maintain a closed society to maintain control. And I don't think his goals are economic, but political. They're hegemonic. I think North Korea's goal is exactly what North Korea has always said its goal is, which is uh, independent reunification and final victory. It wants to dominate all of the Korean Peninsula. Its ambitions extend beyond its borders. And I don't know why it's so hard for us to believe what they say. What are your feelings about the current South Korean administration under President Moon Jae-in? 
I can't decide whether it's hopelessly naive or whether it is uh, quietly sympathetic to North Korea. When Chief of Staff Im Jong-suk was in position, that really pushed me more in favor uh, of the, uh, or more in the direction of there being a, a substantial amount of actual North Korean sympathy within the administration, because Im Jong-suk himself had been an organizer of uh, you know, the propaganda tour to Pyongyang by Im Su-kyung. He had been a leader of a radical pro-North Korean student organization called Chun Bae-hyup that was responsible for fire bombings and attacks on U.S. installations. He had, in fact, been the financial agent collecting royalties in South Korea for the use of North Korean media and then funneling that money to North Korea starting in 2005, which was one year before the UN Security Council first put restrictions on sending funds to North Korea. Now, Im is out of that position, but he remains in an influential place within the Moon administration. Um, you know, as for Moon himself, I think it's really a question mark. He, he may, in fact, just be someone who is very, very naive about the North's intentions, who thinks that they can be persuaded to take a kinder, gentler path. Do you believe that uh, President Moon and his uh, government are currently violating any United Nations sanctions against North Korea? Right now, it's hard to say. I know that in the recent past, uh, we had the coal imports coming from North Korea through Russia or Indonesia to South Korea. So, for example, the Wise Honest, the merchant ship that was recently seized and now is the defendant in a forfeiture proceeding in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, was carrying coal from North Korea to Busan, where it was going to offload that coal for the South Korean State Utility Company. There were a lot of red flags about multiple shipments of North Korean coal, like the Wise Honest shipment, including warnings from the U.S. government, uh, including the fact that the coal was anthracite, which is a high carbon form of coal. And although it normally has a higher market value, it was selling at a substantial discount. It was coming through Nakhodka ostensibly, which is a known port where North Korean coal is smuggled through. The fact that the South Korean Coast Guard and the power company were somehow ignorant of the origin of the coal is, is suspect to me. The circumstantial evidence to me suggests that they probably had a very good idea that the coal was North Korean. I can say that uh, South Korea shipped fuel to Kaesong and didn't report that to the UN Security Council 1718 Committee. Uh, it exported steel rails and machinery to Kaesong without reporting it. There was news video that I saw showing an ATM running at Kaesong, which technically could be considered a bank branch, which would also violate the resolutions. So there seems to be uh, a willful blindness in Seoul about complying with the UN Security Council resolutions. And when you have the South Korean government continuing to say, we want to reopen Kaesong, that suggests 
an interest in getting an exemption that would undermine the pressure that will be absolutely essential to disarming North Korea peacefully. Okay, let, let's move on to the uh, the topic of funding, which is one of our special topics today. You wrote a, a blog post in April last year about the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy, the KIEP, cutting most of its funding to Johns Hopkins University's U.S. Korea Institute. Uh, what happened there? So the details of this are still in some dispute. The KIEP side of the story is that they were trying to do an audit of the USKI, and the USKI wasn't passing a financial audit. The USKI side of the story, from Bob Gallucci, who is maybe not what you would call on my pole of the political spectrum, but nonetheless is a man of great integrity, who is respected for, for speaking truthfully, claims that he was told to fire the man yeah, sorry, named Jay I should just point out to the listeners that he was at that time the director of the USKI, uh, correct? Correct. And right. he was the individual who, in fact, was the chief negotiator of the 1994 agreed framework, of which I have been very critical. But nonetheless, Mr. Gallucci says that it was a demand to fire what I would call a center-right expert named Jay Koo that caused uh, KIEP to then first threatened to pull the funding. They subsequently then demanded that USKI also fire a young woman named Jenny Town, who was a lovely person and also completely uh, opposite me in all of her opinions. I think we agree on nothing whatsoever. What I do think we would agree on, however, is that this sent a chilling effect through scholars all over Washington, D.C., that if you buck your South Korean donors, they will pull your purse strings. Something similar to this happened with the American Enterprise Institute back in 2006, when the American Enterprise Institute reacted to a wave of anti-Americanism that was in fact waning at that time uh, by publishing articles that were somewhat critical of the state of the alliance at that time and the Korea Foundation, which, by the way, is not registered as an agent of a foreign principal under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, uh, reportedly threatened to pull AEI's funding, and it demanded that AEI terminate Nicholas Eberstadt, Professor Nicholas Eberstadt, who is a friend of mine. So we have two cases where think tanks were in fact threatened with the loss of funding and i wonder how many others have gone unreported in the case of the uh, the cutting of the funding by the KIEP the, the initial uh, instructions were traced back to some uh, certain blue house aides i think weren't they they were the Chosun Ilbo a right wing south korean newspaper actually obtained somehow, not sure how, and printed an email from the Blue House to KIEP. Now, we're a year later uh, from that, and the, uh, the USKI is uh, shrunk to a, you know, a, a rump of its former self, basically some uh, Korean language and Korean studies uh, teaching and training. 
Uh, are we any closer to understanding why, for example, Jenny Town was specifically targeted when, as you point out, she was politically more aligned with the current Blue House than with uh, yourself, for example? Well, this is completely mysterious to me, and it's a part of the story that is hardest to explain. The only thing that I can can sort of guess, and this is pure speculation on my part, is that perhaps they picked on Jenny to shield themselves from charges that they were exerting some ideological control over USKI by going after it, as far as I know, only right-of-center expert in, in JQ. But again, I have no evidence to support that theory. I really don't know why they picked on Jenny. It doesn't make sense to me. And what happened to David Straw about the Sejong Institute here in Seoul? Well, I reached out to David and I asked him if he would be willing to talk about that and, and give me that information firsthand. Uh, he very politely declined to talk about it. You got, the, same, was, you got the exact same response that I did. I tried the same thing. Well, uh, Mr. Straub is someone uh, who is exceptional for his tact and his decorum. Absolutely. And so maybe he was, uh, you know, true to type in this situation. But there was a newspaper report that uh, I think it was the Jungang Ilbo, a fairly centrist newspaper, uh, was really right of center and has now moved more left of center, reported that Straub gave the South Koreans a warning that they really should have heeded in retrospect that the uh, suddenness of their policy shift toward being anti-anti-North Korean was potentially going to decouple the U.S.-Korean alliance. Uh, I guess that's information they didn't want to hear. Now, when you say anti-anti-North Korean, what do you specifically mean by that? Well, in other words, uh, you know, to say that someone is pro-North Korean uh, suggests that they necessarily share North Korea's goals and ideology and admire its political system. And that isn't always the case with people who nonetheless defend North Korea against criticism and sanctions and, and other sort of natural ethical responses to an unethical regime. Again, I don't want to attribute to Moon Jae-in that he is directly sympathetic to North Korea's goals. I think, again, it's sort of a question mark what his actual opinions are. I suspect they're mostly nationalistic, but he certainly has acted as what the opposition leader recently called a spokesman for North Korea. And he certainly has done everything in his power to humanize an inhuman regime. Is humanizing an inhuman regime or an inhuman leader, is that a, an ethical failing in your, in your view? It is if the regime is not moving in the direction of reform. So if we were talking about South Africa, in 1990, which was by this point irreversibly on the path to becoming a full democracy and abolishing apartheid, it would be something that could be defended. But in a system like North Korea's, which shows no significant sign of disarmament, of closing down its political prison camps, of treating its population humanely, opening up, reforming, 
putting the needs of its people before military spending and luxury spending. It's not doing any of those things. And therefore, North Korea has not earned, you know, the, 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 the right to be humanized. It has not earned sanctions relief. None of the things that should be conditions on a state's membership in the civilized community of nations. Do you see strong evidence that the South Korean government is also silencing the voices of uh, North Korean defectors? I see some evidence of that, and it's using a, a variety of different approaches to different defectors. We have seen some efforts to sort of mute the voice of Taeyong Ho. There was the press conference where he uh, attended the event, I guess, in the uh, it's, it wasn't a press conference. It was a panel event in Seoul right before the Pyeongchang Olympics and his security detail prevented the event from being filmed and it hustled people sort of, uh, or it hustled Tay out of the event without letting him answer questions. That created enough of a backlash. And as I understand it, there were some back channel U.S.-South Korean diplomatic communications about that event that the South Koreans seem to have laid off Taeyong Ho. He's blogging, he's speaking, he's apparently still outspoken. He, he produces then, a video for Daily NK every two weeks, uh, newspaper columns carried by the Sege Ilbo. He's spoken at our NK Pro events. Uh, and as you point out, his website, which you can find at taeyongho.com, appears to be updated quite regularly. So, yeah, you, you're right that at the moment it seems that he's able to continue his operations without too much... Uh, uh, interference. And and that's a good thing, although we can never be certain uh, the extent to which he may be self-centering I, or self-censoring. Sorry, I, I haven't seen, for example, him calling for uh, a people's revolution like he called for before Moon Jae-in's inauguration. So I don't know if he has sort of maybe softened the tone of his language or, or not. Uh, I, I just I can't speak there. I know that in some cases, defector organizations have said, well, if you know, if you say these things that are beneficial or supportive of the president's policies, we will fund your travel or your organization. But if you don't, we will not fund them. Um, I have uh, noted the example of the balloon launches uh, of leaflets across from South to North Korea, which went uninterrupted for perhaps a decade before just this year for the first time, Moon Jae-in's police stopped those launches from happening, despite the fact that a piece of paper is a completely peaceful means to transmit information and in a way that is protected under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, I think the scariest things have historically been vicarious forms of censorship where small subnational groups, you know, private groups will engage in threatening or intimidating behavior of various kinds, and the state will do really nothing about that. And I'll point out two examples of that. One is a group that calls itself the Pectu Guardians, which showed up uh, at the offices of the Daily NK, wearing dark clothing and sunglasses, demanding that the Daily NK be shut down. 
Then they did a mock execution of Pak Sung Hak and Tae Yong Ho with super soakers. So it was sort of an absurd scene, but you have to consider that Pak Sung Hak was in fact the target of an actual assassination attempt a few years ago. North Korean agents in South Korea have tried on multiple occasions to assassinate defectors in South Korea. Uh, on one occasion, in fact, they did kill a guy. North Korean agents were convicted on, I believe, three separate occasions of trying to kill uh, Hwang Jung-yup, who finally died when he was 87 years old, uh, apparently of natural causes. The other one I want to point out is really the more frightening one to me. There is a group called Minbyun, which is a uh, sort of the South Korean analog to the National Lawyers Guild, only much more powerful, uh, politically powerful in that both former President No Mu Hyun and current President Moon Jae-in are, in fact, former members of, or in the case of Moon, perhaps a current member of Minbyun. When the 16 young women defected from uh, Ningpo, China, uh, from the restaurant to South Korea, Minbyun immediately began petitioning the court to make the women come to court and state whether they defected of their own volition. This, of course, is a complete breach of their absolute right to confidentiality under the Refugee Convention. It was a blatant attempt uh, orchestrated by Minbyun's so-called clients uh, who are their, the families of the, of the 12 young women who are still in North Korea and under the presumptive control of the North Korean government to force these women to expose their identities and to publicly state their views, knowing that by saying that they had defected of their own volition, then they're endangering their families. But if they deny that they defected of their own volition, then they lose their eligibility for asylum. So this is really one of the most contemptible behaviors that I've seen by people on the political left in South Korea that to me looks like a clear attempt to intimidate defectors. And we have seen this continue even into recent weeks. Okay, I want to bring it back to uh, the issue of funding in, uh, and, and influence in other countries, uh, specifically in the United States. You wrote in a post in August last year that South Korea spends more to influence Washington than Israel, China, and Saudi Arabia combined. Uh, that, that figure was from a report put together by the Center for Responsive Politics, which can be found at opensecret.org. Uh, the conclusion that they reached was that South Korean governmental and non-governmental entities spent a total of $70.5 million in the U.S. in 2017 and 18, uh, Japan ranking second with uh, $51.4 million. Uh, whereas Israel, China, and Saudi Arabia altogether, those three countries altogether, equaled less than 60 million. Uh, and about 46 of the 70.5 million from South Korea came from COTRA, the Korean government's Korea Trade Promotion Center. You know, what, what effect is that money having on, on conversations or on research and think tanks in, uh, in Washington related to uh, the Korean Peninsula? It's complicated. And let's begin by unpacking that there is a big asterisk at the end of that conclusion. So according to those statistics, 
South Korea spends more than Israel, Saudi Arabia, and China combined. However, they probably still, in some important regards, understate the South Korean contribution, but the contributions of other states are also probably understated. So, for example, in the case of Israel, I, I don't question, and I say this as a proudly Jewish American, Israel does have a lot of influence on Capitol Hill. There isn't any question about that. But pro-Israel advocacy groups are largely funded by contributions from Americans like me. Now, I'm not one of them. Uh, I, I'm saving my money for my family. But nonetheless, those are not reportable uh, contributions under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And I would argue that they probably should not be. What Americans donate to groups to influence foreign policy is really just up to them. On the other hand, there is also a lot of understating on the South Korea side because of an organization that I have mentioned previously called the Korea Foundation. By all accounts uh, that I'm able to collect in any event, the Korea Foundation is the 800-pound gorilla of the South Korea lobby. Now, I haven't heard their side of the argument for why they're not required to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Maybe they have a perfectly good reason for that. But they are, in fact, a creation of Korean law. They are a name that I continue to hear mentioned again and again when I talk about think tanks as being a very important donor to research about Korea, to advocacy about Korea, uh, to the people who may testify on Capitol Hill or who may be quoted in the newspapers that you read. So I would be interested in knowing what the Korea Foundation's argument is about why it's not fair registered. And then I'd like to really know who the Korea Foundation is donating to. On the other hand, uh, there is a group called the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy that has registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. It produces a lot of excellent research that I read. Uh, and some of it is not necessarily uh, all supportive of South Korean government policy. So a lot of it is quite independent and, and, and I think quite reliable. That's the, uh, the Korea Economic Institute, which is listed as an agent of the organization you just mentioned, the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy. That's, that's right. And they were, as far as I know, not at all involved in the uh, situation with the uh, U.S. Korea Institute, uh, where it cut off the funding uh, to that organization. They were not apparently in the middle of that. So that's an important point of clarification. So not everyone who is taking South Korean money is necessarily influenced in ways uh, that compromise its independence. But nonetheless, I think that as members of the public, we want to know this. In the April blog post that I mentioned earlier, you wrote, quote, I've long believed that the topic of Korean influence, which has already yielded one major influence peddling scandal in Washington, uh, I'm assuming you are referring there to the Koreagate scandal of the late 1970s, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, to continue on with your quote, uh, that this topic of Korean influence would be an appropriate one for a congressional hearing, unquote. Do you still stand by that? And have you pushed or would you push for such a hearing? You, you know, it could be a hearing. Uh, 
because hearings are a good way to launch legislation. All I am saying is that we should have more openness and more transparency about who is donating to who so that we can make our own conclusions, reach our own conclusions about whether those donations are affecting the independence of what those organizations say. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It's uh, it's good for everybody to be upfront about uh, where their sources come from. Just like when we read a newspaper, we want to know what's uh, an advertorial paid for by a company and what's a genuine news piece, uh, and the same on television. What's a bit of sponsored content and what's actually produced by the TV station? And I, I've got a, uh, a disclosure agreement of my, my own to read out here. Uh, not agreement, sorry, a disclosure statement. Uh, questions over funding in the North Korea field are important, and so it's a good occasion to explain something about... This podcast. We at NK News receive partial support to make this podcast available to listeners for free from the Uni Korea Foundation, a South Korean non governmental organization which was formed in 2015. It has raised money from citizens as part of a Uni Korea fund from both Korean and international communities to support various agencies that strengthen inter-Korean cooperation and carry out various activities to bring forward the day of Korean unification. You can find their website at tongilnanum, that's T-O-N-G-I-L-N-A-N-U-M.com, and they also have a Facebook page, look for UniKorea Foundation. In the past, we have also received money from UniKorea for an effort to make a free-to-access Korean language version of the NK News website, uh, now discontinued, to make a cell phone news app and to do a couple of conference events in Seoul and Washington. At the outset of their funding support in 2016 and 17, we didn't want to be too transparent about this because of the problematic nature of inter-Korean relations. We thought that the South Korean provenance of the funding could potentially pose problems for NK News's reporting team during their visits to North Korea, two of which have taken place since we've worked with UniKorea. As a result, we didn't disclose it. Uh, now the topic of questions about funding are emerging once again, so it seemed a good opportunity to share with everyone today that UniKorea does support this podcast, although they have no editorial input whatsoever, and we've had uh, no interference from them in terms of podcast guest choice. And you can hear an interview that I did with Holly Gung, the International Programs Manager at the UniKorea Foundation, back in episode 63 of this podcast series. Though UniKorea generously supports our podcast, this funding is 100% separate from the main NK Pro and NK News products, which are funded exclusively through subscription revenue. There you go. End of disclosure. And that required integrity on your part, and I commend you for making that disclosure. There, there are, however, other institutions in, in Washington, D.C. that undoubtedly received funding from Korean sources, South Korean sources, that I wish would be more forthcoming about what they receive. Whenever I go to events at a think tank, People are afraid to criticize South Korean government policies. They're concerned about the loss of funding. They're concerned about getting calls and getting a, a potential backlash. And, and I, I think that someone has to you know, call for more transparency about that funding, how it may or may not influence the integrity and the independence of what people have to say about Korea policy. I can tell you that some scholars, uh, all of whom, of course, would hasten to say, please don't use my name, privately feel that it's a source of concern, that it restricts their own independence. 
because their boards, you know, may be concerned about the loss of funding, too. So, look, I just wanted to come out into the open. Thank you very much, Joshua Stanton, for joining us today on the podcast. I will remind our listeners that you can check out the One Free Career blog at freecareer.us. Are you also an, an active Twitterer, Joshua? Oh, too much so. And where can people find you on the Twitter feed? FreeKorea underscore US. Thank you very much. And uh, listeners, don't forget that you can check all of our past episodes of the podcast at nknews.org or at iTunes. Please leave a review and share it with others. Thank you once again and listen uh, next time.